This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July 2007. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey. Joan of Arc, Part 4. On the Wednesday after Trinity Sunday in 1431, being then about nineteen years of age, the maid of Arc underwent her martyrdom. She was conducted before midday, guarded by eight hundred spearmen, to a platform of prodigious height, constructed of wooden billets, supported by occasional walls of lathe and plaster, and traversed by hollow spaces in every direction for the creation of air-currents. The pile, quote, struck terror, says Monsieur Michelet, by its height, unquote, and, as usual, the English purpose in this is viewed as one of pure malignity. But there are two ways of explaining all that. It is probable that the purpose was merciful. On the circumstances of the execution I shall not linger. Yet to mark the almost fatal felicity of Monsieur Michelet in finding out whatever may injure the English name, at a moment when every reader will be interested in Joanna's personal appearance, it is really edifying to notice the ingenuity by which he draws into light from a dark corner a very unjust account of it, and neglects, though lying upon the high road, a very pleasing one. Both are from English pens, Grafton a chronicler, but little read, being a stiff-necked John Bull, thought fit to say that no wonder Joanna should be a virgin, since her, quote, foul face, unquote, was a satisfactory solution of that particular merit. Hollinshead, on the other hand, a chronicler somewhat later, every way more important, and universally read, has given a very pleasing testimony to the interesting character of Joanna's person and engaging manners. Neither of these men lived till the following century, so that personally this evidence is none at all. Grafton sullenly and carelessly believed as he wished to believe. Hollinshead took pains to inquire, and reports undoubtedly the general impression of France, but I cite the case as illustrating Monsieur Michelet's candor. Footnote. Amongst the many ebullitions of Monsieur Michelet's fury against us poor English are four which will be likely to amuse the reader, and they are the more conspicuous in collision with the justice which he sometimes does us, and the very indignant admiration which, under some aspects, he grants to us. 1. Our English literature he admires with some gnashing of teeth. He pronounces it, quote, fine and somber, unquote, but I lament to add, quote, skeptical, Judaic, satanic, in a word, anti-Christian, That Lord Byron should figure as a member of this diabolical corporation will not surprise men. It will surprise them to hear that Milton is one of its satanic leaders. Many are the generous and eloquent Frenchmen, beside Chateaubriand, who have, in the course of the last thirty years, nobly suspended their own burning nationality, in order to render a more rapturous homage at the feet of Milton. And some of them have raised Milton almost to a level with angelic natures. Not one of them has thought of looking for him below the earth. As to Shakespeare, 
Monsieur Michelet detects in him a most extraordinary mare's nest. It is this. He does, quote, not recollect to have seen the name of God, unquote, in any part of his works. On reading such words, it is natural to rub one's eyes and suspect that all one has ever seen in this world may have been a pure ocular delusion. In particular, I begin myself to suspect that the word la gloire never occurs in any Parisian journal. Quote, the great English nation, says Monsieur Michelet, has one immense profound vice, to wit, pride. Unquote. Why, really, that may be true, but we have a neighbor not absolutely clear of an quote, immense profound vice, unquote, as like ours in color and shape as cherry to cherry. In short, Monsieur Michelet thinks us, by fits and starts, admirable, only that we are detestable, and he would adore some of our authors, were it not that so intensely he could have wished to kick them. 2. Monsieur Michelet thinks to lodge an arrow in our sides by a very odd remark upon Thomas Akempis, which is that a man of any conceivable European blood, a Finlander, suppose, or a Zantiot, might have written Tom, only not an Englishman. Whether an Englishman could have forged Tom must remain a matter of doubt, unless the thing had been tried long ago. That problem was intercepted forever by Tom's perversiveness in choosing to manufacture himself. Yet, since nobody is better aware than Monsieur Michelet, that this very point of Kempis, having manufactured Kempis, is furiously and hopelessly litigated, three or four nations claiming to have forged his work for him, the shocking old doubt will raise its snaky head once more, whether this forger, who rests in so much darkness, might not, after all, be of English blood. Tom, it may be feared, is known to modern English literature, chiefly by an irreverent mention of his name, in a line of Peter Pinder's, Dr. Wolcott, fifty years back, where he is described as, quote, Kempis Tom, who clearly shows the way to kingdom come. Unquote. Few in these days can have read him, unless in the Methodist version of John Wesley. Amongst those few, however, happens to be myself, which arose from the accident of having, when a boy of eleven, received a copy of the De Imitatione Christi as a bequest from a relation, who died very young, from which cause, and from the external prettiness of the book, being a Glasgow reprint, by the celebrated Forli, and gaily bound, I was induced to look into it, and finally read it many times over, partly out of some sympathy which, even in those days, I had with its simplicity and devotional fervor. But much more from the savage delight I found in laughing at Tom's latinity. That, I freely grant to Monsieur Michelet, is inimitable, else as regards substance, it strikes me that I could forge a better de imitatione myself. But there is no knowing till one tries. Yet, after all, it is not certain whether the original was Latin. But, however, that may have been, if it is possible that Monsieur Michelet can be accurate in saying that there are no less than sixty French versions, not editions, observe, but separate versions, existing of the De Imitatione, how prodigious must have been the adaptation of the book to the religious heart of the fifteenth century. Excepting the Bible, 
but excepting that only in Protestant lands no book known to man has had the same distinction. It is the most marvellous bibliographical fact on record. Footnote A. Quote, if Monsieur Michelet can be accurate, unquote. however, on consideration, this statement does not depend on Michelet. The bibliographer Barbier has absolutely specified sixty in a separate dissertation, soixante traductions, amongst those even that had not escaped the search. The Italian translations are said to be thirty. As to mere editions, not counting the early MSS for half a century before printing was introduced, those in Latin amount to two thousand, and those in French to one thousand. Meantime, it is very clear to me that this astonishing popularity, so entirely unparalleled in literature, could not have existed except in Roman Catholic times, nor subsequently have lingered in any Protestant land. It was the denial of Scripture fountains to thirsty lands which made this slender rill of Scripture truth so passionately welcome. End. Footnote A. 3. Our English girls, it seems, are as faulty in one way as we English males in another. None of us lads could have written the opera Omnia of Mr. Akempis. Neither could any of our lasses have assumed male attire like La Pucelle. But why? Because, says Michelet, English girls and German think so much of an indecorum. Well, that is a good fault, generally speaking. But when Monsieur Michelet ought to have remembered a fact in the martyrologies which justifies both parties, the French heroine for doing, and the general choir of English girls for not doing, a female saint, specially renowned in France, had, for a reason as weighty as Joanna's, viz. expressly to shield her modesty amongst men, wore a male military harness. That reason and that example authorized La Pucelle. But our English girls, as a body, have seldom any such reason, and certainly no such saintly example to plead. This excuses them. Yet still, if it is indispensable to the national character that our young women should now and then trespass over the frontier of decorum, it then becomes a patriotic duty in me to assure Monsieur Michelet that we have such ardent females amongst us, and in a long series, some detected in naval hospitals when too sick to remember their disguise, some on fields of battle, multitudes never detected at all, some only suspected, and others discharged without noise by war offices and other absurd people. In our navy, both royal and commercial, and generally from deep remembrances of slighted love, women have sometimes served in disguise for many years, taking contentedly their daily allowance of burgoo, biscuit, or cannon-balls, anything in short, digestible or indigestible, that it might please Providence to send. One thing at least is to their credit— Never any of these poor masks, with their deep, silent remembrances, have been detected through murmuring, or what is nautically understood, by skulking. So, for once, Monsieur Michelet has an erratum to enter upon the fly-leaf of his book in presentation copies. 4. But the last of these ebullitions is the most lively. We English at Orléans, and after Orléans, which is not quite so extraordinary, if all were told, fled before the maid of Arc. Yes, says Monsieur Michelet, you did. Deny it, if you can. Deny it, my dear? I don't mean to deny it. 
running away in many cases is a thing so excellent that no philosopher would at times condescend to adopt any other step. All of us nations in Europe, without one exception, have shown our philosophy in that way at times. Even people, quote, qui ne se rendent pas, unquote, have deigned both to run and to shout, quote, sauve qui pente, unquote, at odd times of sunset. Though, for my part, I have no pleasure in recalling unpleasant remembrances to brave men, and yet, really being so philosophic, they ought not to be unpleasant. But the amusing feature in M. Michelet's reproach is the way in which he improves and varies against us the charge of running, as if he were singing a catch. Listen to him. They, quote, showed their backs, unquote, did these English. Hip, hip, hurrah, three times three. Quote, behind good walls they let themselves be taken, unquote. Hip, hip, nine times nine. They, quote, ran as fast as their legs could carry them, unquote. Hurrah, twenty-seven times twenty-seven. They, quote, ran before a girl, unquote. They did. Hurrah, eighty-one times eighty-one. This reminds one of criminal indictments on the old model in English courts, where, for fear the prisoner should escape, the crown lawyer varied the charge, perhaps, through forty counts. The law laid its guns so as to rake the accused at every possible angle. Whilst the indictment was reading, he seemed a monster of crime in his own eyes. And yet, after all, the poor fellow had but committed one offence, and not always that. Note to Bene. Not having the French original at hand, I make my quotations from a friend's copy of Mr. Walter Kelly's translation, which seems to me faithful, spirited, and idiomatically English, liable, in fact, only to the single reproach of occasional provincialisms. End footnote. The circumstantial incidents of the execution, unless with more space than I can now command, I should be unwilling to relate. I should fear to injure by imperfect report a martyrdom which to myself appears so unspeakably grand. Yet for a purpose pointing, not at Joanna, but at Monsieur Michelet, viz., to convince him that an Englishman is capable of thinking more highly of La Pucelle than even her admiring countrymen, I shall, in parting, allude to one or two traits in Joanna's demeanour on the scaffold, and to one or two in that of the bystanders, which authorise me in questioning an opinion of his upon this martyr's firmness. The reader ought to be reminded that Joanna de Arc was subjected to an unusually unfair trial of opinion. Any of the elder Christian martyrs had not much to fear of personal rancour. The martyr was chiefly regarded as the enemy of Caesar, at times, also, where any knowledge of the Christian faith and morals existed, with the enmity that arises spontaneously in the worldly against the spiritual. But the martyr, though disloyal, was not supposed to be, therefore anti-national, and still less was individually hateful. What was hated, if anything, belonged to his class, not to himself separately. Now Joanna, if hated at all, was hated personally, and in Rouen on national grounds. Hence there would be a certainty of calumny arising against her, such as would not affect martyrs in general. That being the case, it would follow a necessity that some people would impute to her a willingness to recant. No innocence could escape that. 
Now, had she really testified this willingness on the scaffold, it would have argued nothing at all but the weakness of a genial nature shrinking from the instant approach of torment. And those will often pity that weakness most who in their own persons would yield to it least. Meantime, there never was a calumny uttered that drew less support from the recorded circumstances. It rests upon no positive testimony, and it has a weight of contradicting testimony to stem. And yet, strange to say, Monsieur Michelet, who at times seems to admire the maid of Arc as much as I do, is the one sole writer amongst her friends who lends some countenance to this odious slander. His words are, that if she did not utter this word recant with her lips, she uttered it in her heart. Quote, Whether she said the word is uncertain, but I affirm that she thought it. Unquote. Now I affirm that she did not, not in any sense of the word thought, applicable to the case. Here is France calumniating La Pucelle. Here is England defending her. Monsieur Michelet can only mean that, on a priori principles, every woman must be presumed liable to such a weakness, that Joanna was a woman, ergo that she was liable to such a weakness. That is, he only supposes her to have uttered the word by an argument which presumes it impossible for anybody to have done otherwise. I, on the contrary, throw the onus of the argument, not on presumable tendencies of nature, but on the known facts of that morning's execution, as recorded by multitudes. What else, I demand, than mere weight of metal, absolute nobility of deportment, broke the vast line of battle, than arrayed against her? What else but her meek, saintly demeanour won from the enemies, that till now had believed her a witch, tears of rapturous admiration? Quote, Ten thousand men, says Monsieur Michelet himself, ten thousand men wept, Unquote and of these ten thousand, the majority were political enemies knitted together by cords of superstition. What else was it but her constancy, united with her angelic gentleness, that drove the fanatic English soldier, who had sworn to throw a faggot on her scaffold as his tribute of abhorrence, that did so, that fulfilled his vow, suddenly to turn away a penitent for life, saying everywhere that he had seen a dove rising upon wings to heaven from the ashes where she had stood? What else drove the executioner to kneel at every shrine for pardon to his share in the tragedy? And, if all this were insufficient, then I cite the closing act of her life as valid on her behalf, were all other testimonies against her. The executioner had been directed to apply his torch from below. He did so. The fiery smoke rose upwards in billowing volumes, a Dominican monk was then standing almost at her side. Wrapped up in his sublime office, he saw not the danger, but still persisted in his prayers. Even then, when the last enemy was racing up the fiery stairs to seize her, even at that moment did this noblest of girls think only for him, the one friend that would not forsake her, and not for herself, bidding him with her last breath to care for his own preservation, but to leave her to God. That girl whose latest breath ascended in this sublime expression of self-oblivion, did not utter the word recant, either with her lips or in her heart. No, she did not, though one should rise from the dead to swear it. Bishop of Beauvais, thy victim died in fire upon a scaffold, thou upon a down bed. But for the departing minutes of life, both are oftentimes alike, 
at the farewell crisis when the gates of death are opening and flesh is resting from its struggles, oftentimes the tortured and the torturer have the same truce from carnal torment. Both sink together into sleep, together both sometimes kindle into dreams. When the mortal mists were gathering fast upon you two, bishop and shepherd girl, when the pavilions of life were closing up their shadowy curtains about you, let us try, through the gigantic glooms, to decipher the flying features of your separate visions. The shepherd girl that had delivered France, she from her dungeon, she from her baiting at the stake, she from her duel with fire, as she entered her last dream, saw Domremy, saw the fountain of Domremy, saw the pomp of forests in which her childhood had wandered. That Easter festival, which man had denied to her languishing heart, that resurrection of springtime, which the darkness of dungeons had intercepted from her, hungering after the glorious liberty of forests, were by God given back into her hands as jewels that had been stolen from her by robbers. With those, perhaps, for the minutes of dreams can stretch into ages, was given back to her by God the bliss of childhood. By special privilege for her might be created, in this farewell dream, a second childhood, innocent as the first, but not like that, sad with the gloom of a fearful mission in the rear. The storm was weathered, the skirts even of that mighty storm were drawing off, the blood that she was to reckon for had been exacted, the tears that she was to shed in secret had been paid to the last. The hatred to herself and all eyes had been faced steadily, had been suffered, had been survived, and in her last fight upon the scaffold she had triumphed gloriously, victoriously she had tasted the stings of death. For all except this comfort from her farewell dream, she had died, died amidst the tears of ten thousand enemies, died amidst the drums and trumpets of armies, died amidst peals redoubling upon peals, volleys upon volleys, from the saluting clarions of martyrs. Bishop of Beauvais, because the guilt-burthened man is in dreams haunted and waylaid by the most frightful of his crimes, and because upon that fluctuating mirror rising, like the mocking mirrors of mirage in Arabian deserts, from the fens of death most of all are reflected the sweet countenances which the man has laid in ruins. Therefore I know, Bishop, that you also entered your final dream, saw Don Remy. That fountain of which the witnesses spoke so much showed itself to your eyes in pure morning dews, but neither dews nor the holy dawn could cleanse away the bright spots of innocent blood upon its surface. By the fountain, Bishop, you saw a woman seated that hid her face, but as you draw near, the woman raises her wasted features. Would Dom Remy know them again for the features of her child? Ah, but you know them, Bishop, well. Oh, mercy, what a groan was that which the servants waiting outside the bishop's dream at his bedside heard from his laboring heart, as at this moment he turned away from the fountain and the woman, seeking rest in the forests afar off. Yet not so to escape the woman, whom once again he must behold before he dies. In the forests to which he prays for pity, will he find a respite? What a tumult, what a gathering of feet is there! In glades where only wild deer should run, armies and nations are assembling. Towering in the fluctuating crowd are phantoms that belong to departed hours. There is the great English prince, regent of France. There is my lord of Winchester, the princely cardinal that died and made no sign. There is the bishop of Beauvais, clinging to the shelter of thickets. 
What building is that which hands so rapid are raising? Is it a martyr scaffold? Will they burn the child of Domremy a second time? No, it is a tribunal that rises to the clouds, and two nations stand around it, waiting for a trial. Shall my lord of Beauvais sit again upon the judgment seat, and again number the hours for the innocent? Ah, no, he is the prisoner at the bar. Already all is waiting, the mighty audience is gathered, the court is hurrying to their seats, the witnesses are arrayed, the trumpets are sounding, the judge is going to take his place. Oh, but this is sudden. My lord, have you no counsel? Quote, counsel I have none, in heaven above or on earth beneath. Counselor there is none now that would take a brief from me. All are silent. Unquote. Is it indeed come to this? Alas, the time is short. The tumult is wondrous. The crowd stretches away into infinity. But yet I will search in it for somebody to take your brief. I know of somebody that will be your counsel. Who is this that cometh from Domremy? Who is she that cometh in bloody coronation robes from Reims? Who is she that cometh with blackened flesh from walking the furnaces of Rouen? This is she, the shepherd girl, counsellor that had none for herself, whom I choose, bishop, for yours. She it is, I engage, that shall take my lord's brief. She it is, bishop, that would plead for you. Yes, bishop, she, when heaven and earth are silent. End of Joan of Arc, Part 4